I wanted to start this morning, church, just by um, saying thank you. Um, thank you for praying for your pastors this week. We, we got away for a couple days uh, to sift through all the ideas and all the thoughts um, from the Grace Church Summit. And let me just say that God answered your prayers. We put in some long hours. The pastors put in a lot of hard work. And God led us. He genuinely led us. And, and um, He showed up. Uh, while we were away. We had 15 different workshops to go through from the um, Grace Church Summit. We had uh, workshops like facilities and grounds and missions, uh, kids ministries, prayer, Bible teaching, outreach, connecting opportunities, youth in college, property usage, and more. And I am thrilled to say, church, out of the 15 workshops uh, from the summit, over 20 ideas are going to be implemented right away. I mean, that's incredible. Um, I feel like Tiger Woods. I just have to say that. That sounded like a golf clap. All right. Thank you. Come on. All right. So ideas uh, that are going to be implemented, ideas like uh, a Facebook connections page where people connect through shared activities. Ideas like a prayer room where people will be greatly ministered to through prayer. And I am thrilled about resources that are coming very soon that will put top-notch, world-class Bible study resources in your hands. Uh, 20 different ideas from 15 workshops implemented right now. Ideas that we would have never thought up on, on our own. Ideas from you. And I, I think it's incredible. So I just want to say thank you, church, for being involved in the Grace Church Summit. Thank you for praying for us as we were away. And because of this summit, we were able to hear loud and clear the heartbeat of our church. I just, I am so stinking proud to be the pastor of this church. I'm proud of you. The heart of this church is nothing short of amazing. The heartbeat of Grace Church that rang loud and clear was outreach. I mean, we heard it. It was deafening to our ears. We want to reach this community, and we want to make a difference. We have a body of believers that truly want to make a difference in the communities around us, and it lines up perfectly with the foundational mission of our church. We want to see people get in to the family of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we want to see people grow up by getting spiritually and physically and emotionally and even mentally healthy. And the ultimate win is to see them go out to influence this world for good. That's outreach. That's what the heartbeat of our church. And church, I can say with absolute assurance that outreach is going to drive the future of Grace Church. It's going to be the driving force. In order for us to grow, we have to go. We have to. Over the past few years, God has helped us to clarify our mission, our mission of get in, grow up, go out. He's helped us to clarify our vision of being disciples who make disciples. And now He's given us clarity on the steps we need to take to see this mission and to see this vision come to reality, to see it realized. Steps to truly impact this region 
for God's glory. I've never been more excited about the future of Grace Church. And so I'm going to ask you to please continue to pray for your pastors. Uh, we're actually going to be meeting with the elders of Grace Church this Tuesday morning, simply to just, just to make sure that we're not crazy. That's really the, <laughs> the goal of Tuesday morning's meeting. Like just please tell us if we're crazy. Uh, but we're going to be meeting with them Tuesday morning. And uh, uh, I'm just going to ask you to continue to pray. I'm excited about uh, as we continue to just unveil the plan that God has given us to you. Uh, but let me be clear, church. In order for the mission and the vision to become a reality, it's going to take your involvement. It's not going to be just a couple of people that make this happen. It's going to take an army of volunteers who, who are united and who are willing to give their very best to the cause. Their very best. Church, we're going for it in 2016. Okay? We're going for it. We're going for it. We really are. We're going to go for it. This morning, as we continue our series through 1 John, I want, us to, I want us to start by watching a video, okay? Remember, 1 John was written by the Apostle John when he was an older man. And he was writing these words in the book of 1 John to encourage the younger generations. He was writing them to encourage the younger generations in their faith, he was trying to give them assurance of their salvation. He was trying to encourage them and to say, hey, you can trust Jesus. He's trustworthy. And so I wanted us to hear from some in Grace Church who have walked with Jesus longer than the rest of us. I trust that you are going to be encouraged by this video. So I want you to hear from Bonnie Baker this morning. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be cool. Watch this. Check this out. I'm writing this letter. Because uh, when you need Jesus, he's there. My marriage was falling apart. And I had three little boys, three babies, you might say. And uh, I just thought my life was over. I just knew there was one person I could call on. I prayed and God was there. He I didn't have to wait for him. He was there. Sometimes you think you're not, you don't have anything to be thankful for. <clears throat> but you do, because every, everything that God puts you through uh, is something that you can be thankful for because it turns out so much better later on if you listen to him. But God is going to work things out. So just be patient. Uh, don't get angry and, and walk away because I don't think that's what the Lord wants. This has been my church, um, I'm saying all my life, because that's when my life started was when I was saved. Bonnie said her life started after she was saved. That's when her life began. I, I love that. I love it. 
She turned to Jesus in faith, and he was there. Through her good times of life and through the difficult times of her life, Bonnie said, God is going to work things out. When I asked uh, Bonnie to do this video, I said, would you just speak to the younger generations? And she's saying to the younger generations, God is going to work things out. God is going to work things out. Be patient. She said, don't get angry and walk away. Bonnie has walked with Jesus for a long time. And as she looks back on her life in Christ, she's saying to the younger generations, you can trust Him. You can trust Him. She's speaking from experience. He's always been there, she said. Gosh, I love that. You know, as we read this letter of 1 John, written by the Apostle John, he was an older man. And he's writing to the younger generations, and he's writing from experience, and he's saying, you can trust Jesus Christ. You can trust Him. I know. I've walked with Him. I've eaten with Him. I have touched Him. You can trust Him. He's always been there. John continues to speak to the younger generations. And we're going to see this in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, My dear children. John is, is speaking to the younger generations like a father would. Remember, we're reading a letter from a man who ate with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. And he spent most of his life in ministry. We would do well, church, to heed his words. He says, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, which is all of us, we're all sinners. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Listen, church, Satan is the great accuser. The Bible refers to him as the one that accuses all of us. He's the great accuser. And he demands the death penalty when you sin. He demands it. But John is saying, Jesus defends you. Jesus is your defense attorney. He defends you. How cool is that? Verse 2. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the world. Not only is Jesus your defense attorney, but he paid your penalty. You were standing there, the prosecuting attorney was Satan himself, and he's accusing you, and you were standing there guilty. Okay, you had the blood on your hands. You were guilty, caught in the act. And Jesus steps in and he not only defended you, but he took your punishment. He himself, verse 2, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. Verse 4, if someone claims, I know God but doesn't obey God's commands, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. 
But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Verse 6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Man, John is speaking to us as a father, but I know some conversations that I've had with my father, some of those conversations were not always easy. And John is speaking to us as a father, and he is, he's, he's getting to it right here, church. He's saying, if you say you love Jesus, but your lifestyle has nothing to do with Jesus, guess what? You don't love Jesus. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. There should be evidence of life change. Believers in this day were struggling with the assurance of their salvation. I don't know how many of you have ever struggled with that where they say, I mean, I don't know if I'm saved or I'm not. Am I God's son or am I God's daughter? And we're kind of back and forth and we struggle knowing whether or not we're truly saved. In this day, many false teachers were rising up. And many of those false teachers were claiming to be followers of God. Many were claiming to be Christians, but their lifestyles were identical to the world. You couldn't tell them apart. They were asking the questions in this day. How do we know that we're saved? How do, how do we know that we're good with God? How do you know that you belong to Christ? How do you truly know that you are God's son or that you are God's daughter? And these are very good questions to ask. And John says, you know you're a child of God when you do what Christ says. You can't say you live in righteousness and continue to live in unrighteousness. Once again, John, John says, you know you are truly a child of God when you do what Christ says. This faith you claim you have in Jesus, church, it has to translate into action. It has to. James chapter 1 and verse 22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only. If you don't do what the word says, you're only fooling yourself. You, you, you may think you're good with God, but you're not. James puts it this way in James chapter 2 and verse 14. Listen, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith, James says, can't save anyone. Verse 17 in James chapter 2 says, it isn't enough just to have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. John says, you know you're a child of God when you do what Christ says and you live the, the way Christ wants you to live. It's simple, church. This faith in Jesus, it leads to life change. Your life is different. It leads to life transformation. You don't live the way you used to live. You don't dishonor God with your words like you used to. You don't hurt people with your actions 
like you once did. Your life has truly changed. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. We talked about that last Sunday. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things you regret. You're going to do things you wish you didn't do. You're not going to be perfect. And that's where confession and forgiveness comes in. But there should be... You should be able to point to specifics in your life where you see change. You should be able to look at your life and you say, this was before Christ and this is after and it's different. There's change. You're different because you do what Christ says and you live the way Christ wants you to live. That's how you know you're a child of God. That's how you know. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's evidence in your life that change has happened. Transformation. You can point to specific evidence. John chapter 2 and verse 7. In verses 7 and 8. This is the gospel of John. Same author. Verses 7 and 8. He says, dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have heard from the beginning. I'm sorry, this is 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have heard from the very beginning. This old commandment, to love one another, is the same message you heard before. Yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing. To that we can say, praise God. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. John writes a commandment to us that is both new and old. Let's start by making sure we're clear as to what this commandment is, okay? The commandment John is referring to is to love one another. To love one another. The evidence to the reality of our faith is if we love one another. That's the evidence. So what does it mean to love one another? It's an easy expression that we say often in church circles, right? Love one another. But what does it truly mean? True Christian love is not only expressed by showing respect, but it's also expressed through self-sacrifice and servanthood. I believe the best way to define the phrase love one another is selfless giving. It's giving, not expecting anything in return. It's giving not only to your friends, but to your enemies. It's giving to those who persecute you. It's giving to those who are against you. John 15, verse 13 says, Here's how we measure love. The greatest love is shown when people lay down their lives for their friends. Sacrificial love. It's the greatest measurement. That's when you know your love tank is full, is when you lay down your life. Love is is a unifying force and it should be the identifying mark of the Christian community. It should be the identifying mark 
of Grace Church. John referred to this command as being both old and new. So, in what sense is this command old? This command of love one another is old because this command has always been. God is love. The gospel has always offered love. It's always offered hope and life transformation. John isn't adding a new duty to the Christian discipline list. He's not adding a new burden to us. Love has always been there from the very beginning. It's right there in the Old Testament. Check this out. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 says, Never seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone, but love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute, it's, it's in the Old Testament? That, I thought that was like new and revolutionary in the New Testament. No, it's always been. It's always been that way. It's not a new requirement. It's always been there. That's why John is saying this is an old commandment. This is an old way to live. So in what sense is the command new? He referred to it as being new as well. This command of love one another is new because Jesus spoke it and he lived it in a radically new way. In, in John chapter 13 and verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. And you should love, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. People will take notice when we give selflessly. People will take notice when we truly serve, not ourselves, but one another. People will take notice when we serve even to the point of sacrifice or inconvenience. You know, in the system of the world, everyone wants to get to the top. Everyone wants up, up here. You know, if you work on Wall Street, the goal is to earn a lot of money. If you work in Hollywood, the win or the goal is producing award-winning films. If you're a politician in Washington, D.C., the goal is to get as close to the Oval Office as you can. Everyone in the world system wants to get to the top. They want to be at the top. But Jesus said, the way to the top in His kingdom, the way to be successful in His kingdom, is to become a servant. To humbly serve one another. I know many of us are thinking, like, really? <laughs> serve? Like, that's going to help me succeed in life? Isn't that a bit extreme, maybe even a bit radical? Like, to be a servant? That would never work. Listen to what Jesus said. After he had selflessly served his disciples by washing their nasty feet. John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. It says, after washing their nasty feet, I added nasty, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? Man, picture yourself 
like sitting, like God just washed your feet. God, the creator of the universe, just washed your feet. And he asks you, do you understand what I was doing? You, you call me teacher and Lord, and, and you're right, because that's what I, I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's nasty feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Verse 16. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. In our minds, in our fleshly minds, we think that's that's not how you become successful. Being a servant, really? That doesn't make any sense. That will never work. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was a servant. He came to serve. Hey, church, what if we took the servant challenge? I'm going to throw out a little challenge. What if we took the servant challenge? What if we put these words of Jesus to the test? What if we followed the model of Jesus with reckless abandon? What if we took advantage of every opportunity to serve, even if it seemed like something insignificant, like taking out the garbage even though it's not your job? Opening doors for others. Volunteering to clean up after a meeting at work. Helping the elderly woman who's trying to navigate the stairs. What if we began looking for opportunities to serve, not expecting anything in return. If you took the servant challenge, or some time had passed, I would encourage you to ask yourself, am I gaining or am I losing? If you began to just serve and serve and serve and serve and serve and give selflessly, after some time had passed, I would encourage you to ask yourself, am I gaining or am I losing? The fact is, it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. And I would add, it is more blessed to serve than to demand your own way or to think that the world revolves around you or to push your way to the front. You'll be more blessed, church, You'll be more blessed when you serve. The command to love one another is new because very few people are truly doing it. The reality of this love is the only thing that will truly pierce through the darkness. Those who are walking in this type of love are the ones who are changing the world. This kind of love is always conquering new territory. This kind of selfless, servant, sacrificial love came first in Jesus, and now it should shine in the life of every believer. Church, how, how are you doing when it comes to love?
Are, are you living out this command? Are you living it out? Are you living out the command to love one another? Can it not get any more simple? Like just, God says, would you just love each other? Does, am I the only one? Does that sound just super simple? I'm the only one raising my hand, so I guess... <laughs> Thank you. Just making sure you're awake. But I would go back to what I wrote down earlier that very few are truly doing it. John has a little test for us. I know, you're at church, I'm going to give you a test. It's like two whammies against me, right? He has a little test for us to measure how we're truly doing. So let's do a little self-assessment. But first, let's read verses 9 through 11 and learn about the love test. All right, you ready for this? We're going to take the love test. First John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, If anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Verse 10. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. Okay, here's the love test. John asks the first question. Okay, it's on your notes there. Seriously, circle it. This is a test. Okay, and it is pass or fail. Do you hate or detest a fellow Christian? He's even simplifying it. He's not talking about your enemy or those who are against you. He's talking about the one you're sitting next to right now. Okay? Your fellow Christians. Do you hate or detest a fellow Christian? Yes or no? Circle one. Okay? Pretty simple. If you circle yes, you're in darkness. You're in trouble. You are far from God. You're lost and blind to the light of God. So if you circled yes, you can change to no, just so you know what yes means. So if you circle yes, let me just be very clear, that's not a good thing. It's not good. Someone may ask the question, well, what does it mean, Justin, to hate someone? Because I don't like some people. Okay? I don't like people but I don't think I hate them. So let's clarify the word hate in this context. John's words, speaking of hate, focus on the attitude. It's an attitude that causes us to ignore or to despise others. Okay, let me say that again. It's the attitude that causes us to ignore or to despise your fellow Christian brother or sister. You ignore them or you despise them. You ignore them or despise them. It's treating people as a nuisance. Like, you're so annoying. You're, you are so annoying. You're such a bother. I don't want, I, I just don't, I don't have time for you. And it can go so far as it's an enemy. That's what it means to hate. 
Man, this is convicting, I'm telling you right now, to, to, to myself. This is tough. It's treating people as a nuisance, as a bother. I don't have time for you. John says, if that's the case, you're walking in darkness. Your heart's not right. There's something black in there that you need to work on through the power of Christ. The reality is Christian love is not a feeling, church. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a choice. My flesh many times wants to just hole up in a cave and not have anything to do with anybody. That's what I want to do. And just watch Super Bowl 50 reruns all day. That's what I want to do. But I have to make the choice to step out of my shell and serve and give and minister and listen and care. I have to make the choice to care. Loving others is choosing to be concerned with people's well-being and treating them with respect, whether or not we feel affection towards them. There's times I, I ain't feeling nothing, but I have to make the choice to care about your well-being. And guess what? When I make that choice, all of a sudden, the feelings change. It starts with a choice. The second question on the love test that John gives, he asks the question, do you love other Christians? All right, so circle it, yes or no. If you circle yes, John says you're living in the light of God and you're actually a good example to follow. And I think it'd be kind of fun too to even just make sure nobody can see, but write some names down of people that you look up to that's loving well. And ask them to lunch. Say, hey, can you help me to love better? How cool would that be? That was for free, by the way. So, remember that this love that John speaks of is expressed or it's shown by respecting others, by self-sacrifice and servanthood. What it is, is it's simple acts of kindness and service. This is how the world will know that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Church, a a loving relationship with God always results in loving relationships with others. They go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. Okay, loving God, if you are loving